If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're reminded as we go through the book of Acts uh, that the church has always had uh, its individual en- enemies, but we're also reminded in the pages of the New Testament behind uh, the little e enemies, there is one big e enemy. The Apostle Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities uh, that are at work uh, over this present darkness. We have one very real enemy, and unfortunately, as one uh, writer, William Perkins, has noted, he has his kingdoms in the heart of men. Uh, we live in a world, as First John chapter 5 would tell us, that lies under the evil one. Everyone outside of Christ is in captivity to the enemy and does the will of the enemy. The Apostle Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, that outside of Christ we are children of wrath, carried about by the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience. And so we understand that beyond the events that we find in Acts chapter 2, that there is a cosmic battle between the enemy and the church of Christ. The church has a very real enemy in Acts chapter 12, and yet the great threat to the church is not Herod. And so with that in mind, we turn our attention to the text. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod, this is... Agrippa, the nephew of Herod, Antipas, who put Christ to death. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by an angel was real, but though, <clears throat> but thought he was seeing a vision. <clears throat> When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. 
But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this text, Pray that we would be reminded that we serve you, a mighty God. That your right arm is not too short to save. That all that we need, your hand provides. That you are faithful to your people. Sometimes we can live in such a way where we live like the world, doubting that you are involved in our lives. And yet we know that you're a God who is near and not far off. And so we pray that we would draw great confidence from this passage as we study it, knowing that you hear us when we call to you. Even when our prayers are tinged with our remaining doubt and disbelief, you, like a good father, are attentive to the cries of your children. We pray this morning that if there are any who do not know the salvation that is found in Christ, you would open their eyes this morning their desperate need for Christ and His salvation. For this we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So as we continue, uh, that despite all the blessings the church has been experiencing, the, the Gentiles have been saved, uh, the, the church of Antioch is flourishing, there is great rejoicing, and yet persecution continues to be the name of the game. Persecution continues to be the reality of the followers of Christ. Now, I tell you this, and I tell you this often because we need to get it through our head, what we experience right now in our country, in this room right now. This is not the normal experience for Christians in the 2,000 years of the church. The fact that we gather together in worship without fear of reprisal, without fear of being carted off to prison and quote-unquote re-educated, this is a very strange thing in the history of the church. You know, we think of our experience, and we compare it to the bulk of Christians. The bulk of Christians live with the reality of persecution. We think of the number of Christians here in the United States of America versus the number of Christians somewhere like China. There are more Christians in China right now than here in the United States, and I guarantee you uh, that uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ in China uh, could only dream of gathering together in worship like we are this morning. 
The Apostle Paul would uh, tell a church later on in Acts, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. He would write his son in the faith, uh, Timothy. His last letter, he would tell Timothy that all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We see that they are a persecuted lot. Herod, the nephew of the other Herod, understands uh, the, the problem that he faces. He has this group of believers who are upsetting his world because they believe Jesus is the king. Remember, Herod, his uncle, uh, aspired to kingship. They were petty kings under a greater king. Yet the Christians understood and acknowledged Jesus was Lord. Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of that, uh, that, that excited Herod's hatred of the church. And so we're told that at this time, around this time, Luke's not exact in his chronology, but he tells us about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And we find the next recorded martyr, the next name martyr, we understand that Stephen was the first martyr. He's stoned with the approval of Saul, who is now a follower of Christ. And now we have James. And if you remember the Gospel of Luke or the other Gospels, it was James and his brother John who uh, approached Jesus and asked him for a favor that they could sit on his right and his left when he entered into his kingdom, to which he responded, uh, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Meaning, are they going to be able to endure the baptism of suffering? Early church said that there were three baptisms. There's water baptism. We as Baptists understand that you're immersed as a proclamation of your faith in Christ, that you have been saved. Baptism of fire, which happens with new birth when the Spirit comes into you. And the baptism of blood, when you lay down your life for Christ. Jesus asked James and John, uh, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Are you able to suffer for what you're asking for? And they said, we are. And he said they would. But to sit at his right and his left uh, was only going to be allowed by who his father granted it to. That was not his to grant. And so now James finds the fulfillment of Christ's prediction that he would be baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. He is baptized into fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. And so Herod kills James, the brother of John. Now, we kind of get confused if we don't follow the names here. Later on, there's going to be another James mentioned there's an epistle by that very same James. The other James that we're dealing with isn't James, the brother of John, back from the dead. It is James, the brother of Christ. So James is dead. He has finished his course. And the enemies of Christ are overjoyed at this. We're told in verse 3, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to rest Peter also. He, he's doing everything that he can to cater public favor. He wants to be a well-liked king. He, he wants to be feared and loved. And, and he's found that in killing the church leaders, 
the foundational members of the church, that he is getting more love and adoration than he has ever had before. And so he's arrested Peter, and there was a law that they couldn't have a trial for Peter. You had to have a trial before you could execute someone. So they arrest Peter. Peter's put away in prison. He's seized. He is secure. Notice the detail Luke goes in to describe how secure Peter was. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. Not four soldiers, but four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, meaning that he intended to kill him after the Passover. He's decided killing James went over so great. Why not Peter? Remember, Peter's the spokesman. Peter's always been the one uh, to open up his mouth. So if you kill Peter, you're really going to silence him. And so Peter was kept in prison. Spent days in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Notice how the church responds to the problems of the world. Notice how the church responds to their enemies. They don't plan. They don't gather together and say, we need a committee to investigate what we're going to do about Peter's imprisonment and potential death at the hands of Herod. They don't think of what they can do. They don't write a letter uh, to the Roman centurion and appeal to Caesar's authority to save Peter's life. They understand that they require God to work. And as we're going to see, God is going to work. And God's timing is always perfect. So Peter spends some time in prison. And just the night before Peter's going to be executed, God acts. We're told in verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, that means when Herod was about to put him to death, the, the, the night before. So imagine this. Herod goes to bed. He has pleasant dreams of putting Peter to death. He, he, he's probably excited like a child, anticipating Christmas. He's thinking about how much the people are going to be loving on him and adoring him because he's going to put Peter to death. On that very night, Peter was sleeping. Peter is about to lay down his life. Peter, humanly speaking, his fellow apostle James has just been executed before him. He has no thought that Herod is going to spare him. Because if he killed James and he's arrested Peter to imprison him, there is only one way, humanly speaking, this is going to end. Imagine this. You're in prison. You're chained to two soldiers, chain on either wrist. How many of you are going to have a good night's sleep? You, you know, we can't even anticipate a difficult conversation without losing sleep over it. Here this man is. He's about to lose his head. What's he doing? He's sleeping. See, Peter 
is walking out what Paul describes elsewhere, a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Peter has a, a peace and a serenity that is not rooted in his experience or his position in life. Peter has a peace because he knows the prince of peace. Peter is willing to lay down his life for Christ. He's very close to doing what he promised that he was going to do before Jesus' betrayal and backed away from. You remember Peter in the garden? Do you know this man? No, I don't know this. Aren't you one of his followers? No, I don't know him. Three times he denied him, cursing himself. Then when the rooster crowed, what does he do? He goes out and weeps bitterly. What a remarkably changed man this is. In the staring in the maw of the lion, and he's sleeping between two guards, bound with two chains. Think about how secure he is. You don't get much more secure than being chained to two guards and having two guards outside your cell door. Something miraculous is going to have to happen for you to get out. And that's exactly what happens. We're told in verse 7, so he's got two guards on either side of him, two guards outside his door. He's sound asleep. He's snoring away. And we are told in verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. This is an angel. This isn't simply a messenger. This is not a prison break. This isn't one of the Lord's messengers, one of the followers of Christ that have snuck into the prison and worked their way past the guards to enact some kind of jailbreak. This is a supernatural being. God is intervening. This isn't a case of Peter is under-guarded and under-watched, and Jesus' followers are going to make a fast one past them. This is God acting in human history. You know, we live in a day and time where we are so predisposed, and we don't even know it because we've been so shaped by our culture to assume an anti-supernatural understanding of the world. We think that the only things that can intervene in history are those things in the world. We don't think that God can intervene directly. We don't often believe that God sends his angels and works. And yet here we are confronted with the fact that God indeed sent his angel. Peter's sound asleep and a light shines in the cell. And this angel strikes Peter on the side and knocks him awake. Because he's so sound asleep. Peter doesn't even know what's going on. Peter thinks he's having another vision. He thinks, you know, maybe this is like when I saw uh, the cloth and uh, the uh, unclean animals. So he's going along with this thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to wake up at some point and, you know, I'll know what to do. So the angel tells him to get up, to dress himself, wrap his cloak around him, and he follows the angel out. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. They pass not one guard, but two guards, and they come to an iron gate that's locked shut, and what happens? Does the angel pull out a key and say, hey, I got a key off the guard? No. We're told that the iron gate leading to the city, it opened for them of its own accord. They went out along one street, and immediately the angel left them. 
So we've had the persecution of Herod. Persecution's continuing on. We see P Peter's peace. He he's willing to lay down his life. He's not anxious about it. And the, there are a history of martyrs uh, throughout the history of the church uh, that have expressed that very peace. The killing fields of Scotland when the Catholic Church uh, uh, put to death uh, uh, Scottish Protestants. Uh, many of them uh, said that they would go to preaching with more fear than they faced in martyrdom. So it should not surprise us that Peter is filled with peace because the spirit of peace has come into his life. And while Peter has been locked away, what has the church been doing? The church has been doing what it has always done since its inception. We are told when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. While this was going on, the church had been praying for him. They had been praying that he would be released. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter's in prison. The church has been praying for him, praying that God would intervene in a powerful way. And yet, they don't believe when their prayers are answered. You know, sometimes, aren't we just like that? We will pray for something and pray for something uh, with no expectation that the prayer will be answered. And then when the prayer is answered, well, we're in disbelief. Here the church has been praying for days. God answers their prayer. Peter comes to the door where many of the believers were staying. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So even now, he's knocking at the door. And it's me, Peter, let me in. They're praying for his release. Rhoda, the servant girl, comes. She hears Peter's voice, and she's so overjoyed that Peter's released. She goes to tell the others, hey, Peter's out. He's out of prison. How do they respond? They say, great, thank God for answering our prayers. We knew he'd hear us. What do they do? They said to her, verse 15, you are out of your mind. Servant girl has just told them that the very thing that they were in the midst of praying for has been answered, and their response to God answering their prayers is, you are out of your mind. We might be tempted to judge them. You guys have been praying for this. Don't you know God is capable of doing exceedingly above and beyond all that you ask of him? How would you think somebody's out of their mind for telling you that your prayers are answered? If we're honest with ourselves, we live in a day and time where we're very much inclined to be like the apostles. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Church, highlights the fact that the past 50 years have shaped a prayerlessness in the contemporary church because we operate with a secular understanding of how the world operates. We, if we're honest with ourselves, we often don't really believe that prayer works. 
And, and we know that for a fact because if by and large believers in North America and the United States believe that prayer worked, there would be a lot more prayer going on in the church of Christ throughout America today than there is right now. You know, that book, he, he notes the majority world, when people think of going to church, they understand that the main thing that they're going to do is praying with their brothers and sisters in Christ because they understand that when God's people pray, God works. We might not understand how, but He works. God is always doing abundantly more than we can understand. Remember, we're told in the pages of Scripture that He's working all things together according to this will, that he's holding all things together by the word of his power, and, and so we understand that he is orchestrating and involved in every minute event and detail of our lives. How would we not pray to him? Here they are. God's answered their prayer. Their answered prayer is standing right outside, and, and, and they're arguing amongst themselves. You're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, imagine the back and forth. Peter's outside, we've got to let him in. No, it's his angel. No, really, it's Peter I heard him. No, it's his guardian angels because they believe that you, you had an angel that followed you and your angel looked like you and sounded like you. It's his angelic twin waiting outside. Peter's in prison. We're praying for his release, but he's in prison. We know he's safe and secure in prison, and he's going to die tomorrow. So while they're bickering back and forth, their answer prayer is knocking. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, can you imagine how embarrassing it was for everyone else who had been telling Rhoda, it's his angels, not Peter? Peter, stand there. You can see the realism in that. You can understand why Peter would want everyone to be quiet. This man has just made a supernatural prison escape, and he does not want to go back in there. He doesn't want to waste uh, their answered prayer and them yelling, Hey, Peter, you've made it out. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, that is the brother of Jesus, and to the brothers. Then he departed, and he went to another place. Still got the problem of Herod. Herod is still a very real enemy to the church. We understand in God's providence, his power over the world. You know, we're told in Proverbs uh, that the hearts of the king are streams of water in the hands of God. But their lives are also in his hand. Here, here it is. Styles himself a king. Thinks of himself as important, and yet he's been disappointed. Now, Herod is anticipating being so loved by the people. You know, he's been waiting for this day. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Just imagine it, four squads of soldiers, dozens of soldiers, dozens. 
And everyone's probably trying to figure out who let their guard down. And so they search. They lock the gate. Two guys on the outside, two guys chained on the inside. What happened? Where did he go? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. Herod's not a happy camper. Herod's been disappointed, and now he's angry with other people. Verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Josephus tells us that he had his royal robes made out of silver thread, genuine silver. He was quite the spectacle to behold. He wanted all the eyes and attention and adoration on him. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Really appealing to his ego and his vanity. God is active in the world. This enemy of the church, this threat to the church, we're told that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He was struck immediately. Josephus tells us uh, that he died a very painful death. God intervened in history. This very real threat to the church. Because you know, Herod's not going to stop at Peter. You know, Herod's probably all the more angry that Peter slipped through his grip. Yet despite the persecution, despite their enemies, we're told in verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. How very unlike contemporary Christianity we see the Christianity in Acts. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, described uh, their position. He said, aware of the danger and fearful of the future, he describes our position. Aware of the danger and fearful of the future, so they resort to desperate methods to try to maintain the work and to attract the world they turn to entertainment. The church in Acts had no influence. They had no authority. They had no way to appeal to the world. They couldn't entertain the world. They couldn't pay the world off. They were completely dependent upon God. We live in a day and time where we are faced with enemies. There are many influences in society that would love nothing more than for every church across America to shut its doors and for us to be done with it. There are individuals that think that uh, we're just following uh, myths and superstition and wasting our time, our life, and our resources. They definitely wouldn't like the fact that we have vacation Bible school this coming week. They would say that we're indoctrinating uh, another generation in our backwards views. And yet in our day and time, it seems that Many acknowledge the dangerous position that the church is in. We have enemies, very real enemies, who are 
influenced and cared about by our real enemy. Many turn to entertainment. Many turn to influence. That's not the answer. See, what the church in North America and the West needs to do is rediscover what made the church in Acts what it was. The Word of God increased and multiplied not because the church was able to out-influence Herod and out-entertain everyone. They overcame their enemies on their knees. The Apostle Paul, writing the church of Corinth, would say that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, mighty for pulling down strongholds. Yet we live in a day and time where even those who profess to be followers of Christ despise prayer. You know, when a tragedy happens, be it a school shooting or a natural disaster, and God's people respond as they should with prayer, there are some who profess to be believers of Christ say, why can't you do something practical? Yet we're reminded here that the most practical thing that we could be doing as God's people is praying. And we're reminded of our own belief. We're no better than the early church. Here they are, they're praying. Luke tells us twice that they're praying. They prayed earnest prayer for him to God. He's at the door knocking, they're praying for him. And yet they don't believe. They're in disbelief over what God has done for them. I mean, the fact that many of us are here today is demonstration to answer prayer. I imagine there's probably not a person in this room that hasn't had somebody praying for them at some point in life uh, that has enabled you to be in this room right now. Probably individuals that have been praying for you that you you never knew they were praying for you, and, and yet their prayers were answered. They might not never know how their prayers were answered, but their prayers were answered because we have a God who hears our prayers. I'm reminded of the situation of Israel and their Egyptian captivity. Remember, they're groaning in their chains and they're crying out to God for deliverance. God hears, God answers, and God brings them out kicking and screaming despite that it had been the very thing that they had prayed for. We believe we serve a God who is active in the world today. We don't follow the God of deism who created the world and stepped away. We believe in the God who created the heavens and the earth who is involved in our lives even at this very moment. None of us in this room would draw our next breath unless the Lord willed it so. Our every waking moment in his hands. And so because of that, like Peter, we can have peace. We can have peace in the most uncertain circumstances. You know, the Lord could have answered their prayer through Peter being bold enough to face death unapologetically and unashamed of Christ. That's how Peter will end his life. Peter's going to die a martyr's death at some point, but today is not that day for him. Yet even there, as he experiences that peace, that peace that he did not have uh, in the courtyard garden when he was interrogated, not by soldiers, but by a servant girl. 
Now he's sleeping. Not because he's lazy or apathetic or indifferent, but because he has a confidence in Christ. The church is amazed because God has answered their prayer above everything that they could expect. Because we have a God who watches over His church. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, uh, to Paul on the Damascus Road? Why do you persecute me? Told in the pages of Scripture that the people of God are the apple of His eye. We think of the increasing dislike and disdain for Christianity in our society. Biblical Christianity is definitely on the outs. I don't know what tomorrow may hold. But we know who holds us in His hands. And we know that there is nothing, no power that will overcome the church of Christ. Here Herod tries and he fails. He kills one of the twelve. And yet the Word of God increases and multiplies. One early church father once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is through persecution, it is through hardship that the watching world see how real our Christianity is. When we continue steadfast in Christ and we we continue as people of prayer, despite the hardships of life, that demonstrates the truthfulness of Christianity. And here the watching world has seen the gospel vindicated in the lives of the church and Peter's life. I imagine had the soldiers had a little more time, uh, they would have had an opportunity to reconsider their life, but Herod wasn't that merciful. So we see that we must be people of prayer. It's the foundation of our warfare. We have a real enemy. Our enemy's not Herod. Our enemy's not flesh and blood. We're told in Revelation that behind all the earthly assaults that the church faces, there is one very real supernatural enemy. And yet, as Martin Luther tells us in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. We have confidence, we have victory because of Christ. We have help and strength in the battle because of Christ and we can call upon Him and know that He hears us. And He does uh, exceedingly beyond all that we can think or ask. We don't know exactly what the church prayed for Peter, but we know that they were amazed. And when God hears our prayers, He will amaze us with how He works in our lives and the lives of those that we're trying to witness to. Let us be resolved to be people of prayer. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that if there are any who have not found the salvation that is found in Christ, that they would, because we know that the first prayer that you hear is a prayer of repentance from sin and faith towards Christ. And so we pray that if there are any here this morning who have not done that, that they would call upon Christ and be saved. And for those of us who are your children, pray that we would be devoted to prayer, knowing that when we pray, you work in ways that our minds cannot begin to comprehend. We understand that you are in control and that we need you. We pray that our prayer lives would 
be marked by that devotion and dependence to you. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.